You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. We're going to continue on in Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 25. Now, I don't know if he does this on purpose, but I got to tell you, I love my, this part of my job here, okay? Uh, because what happens is he teaches all these really difficult teachings. Like last week, he was talking about bringing offerings in. You know, people hate it. People leave churches. They're like, every time I go to church, they talk about money, right? And they're like, if that pastor talks about money tonight, I'm leaving, right? Okay, so, but, so he gets all those, right? He does all, of, he does all of that type of stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's my turn to teach. And it's this incredible, beautiful illustration of Jesus. And I think he does that on purpose. I think he, he's like, I'm going to give you the easy one. Here, just take the easy one. It's, it's okay. It's okay. So uh, it is an extreme blessing to be able to teach this tonight. I'm really excited. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Ark of the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, and I'm excited about that. Uh, last week, we ended with Moses, okay, and receiving instructions to build the tabernacle of God, and we talked about that. That's all in here, all the details of the tabernacle, all of that, and we're slowly going to go through the details of the tabernacle. He told them to build a tent, okay, and you guys know tents, right? Tents are meant to be put up and taken down, okay? My daughter called me last week, and she's like, Dad, first time ever I'm camping. She had to go to a campground for her job, okay? Uh, she works for an environmental company, and they do this big concert every year, and she went camping for a week. Never done that by herself in her life. And the last three days, it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained. And she's like, my tent was like two inches of water in the bottom. Oh my gosh, right? So tents are, are meant to be set up. They're meant to be taken down. And I don't know about you guys, but I really hate camping. I think it's a miserable, miserable vacation. But some people love it, right? Some people love it. This is a totally different type of tent. This is a tent that God asked them to build. And in verse 8, it says, because I want to dwell with them. Because I want to dwell with them. And what a beautiful, beautiful picture of the heart of God. Because I want to dwell with them. Build me a tent. Build me a place where I can be with my people because I love them, because I love them so much. So we're going to talk about this tent, but the crazy thing is, instead of God first giving them all of the instructions for building the tent itself and then telling them, now build all the stuff that's going to go inside of it, he starts with what would be the very most important thing, okay? It's, it's the centerpiece of the tabernacle. It's the, the most vital element of the tabernacle, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I know if you're anything like me, when somebody says Ark of the Covenant, 1981, I think it was, Harrison Ford stars as Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You guys seen that, right? Everybody seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know where we're going. Okay, so, so, and now there's a new one coming out, right? So, of course, it's all back in popularity. And so the Ark of the Covenant, everybody started asking questions. Yeah, where did that thing go? 
right? What happened to it? Well, I'm going to give you a brief history before we start into the building of the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what the Bible says about the Ark of the Covenant, okay? So uh, because there's so many questions about it, uh, I think it's really important for us to uh, get into uh, a lot of detail here as we start talking about the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark plays a huge role in the Israelites' walk through the wilderness, right? So uh, we see God's telling them to build it here. It's going to be in this tabernacle, Okay? And this tabernacle is collapsible. Now, it's intricate. Okay? It's going to take them a while to set up. And we know, based on what we've been studying in Scripture, that he's leading them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? And so the Scripture says, wherever the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire stops, day or night, okay? we know at night it's fire, in the daytime it's cloud, right? Wherever it stops, that's where they're supposed to camp. Okay, And wherever that stops from this point forward in the building of the tabernacle, they're supposed to put the Holy of Holies in that spot, Okay, because this represents the presence of God, and build the tabernacle around that spot and then build their camps around the outside of the tabernacle. Right? So that's going to be their new order, their new directive. Right? Watch the pillar. When the pillar stops, we all stop. That's where we put the Holy of Holies, and then we build the tabernacle, and it all goes from there, okay? And so that's the ideal here. Well, we've seen the ark several times, and if you, if you know Old Testament history, okay, we can start in Joshua chapter 3. We see that God instructs them to use the ark to enter the water when they're ready to cross into the promised land, Okay? This is not them just traveling it at this point. This is them using it as the presence of God. He says, walk into the water with it. And when they walk into the water with it, the waters of the Jordan part, right? And again, for the second time, the children of Israel walk across on dry land, okay? The ark stays right there in the middle, and they all walk beside it as they go through. Okay, so that's in Joshua chapter 3. We see God, his presence, doing a miraculous work right there as they enter into the promised land. And then as soon as they get to the other side, in Joshua chapter 6, you all know this story, right? Joshua and the walls of Jericho. You know the arch marched along with them. They carried the ark of the covenant. I said the arch marched, but that's not, that's just because those, ah, right? The ark was with them. They carried it with them as they marched around the walls of Jericho, okay? We have to understand that God is telling them to build this Ark of the Covenant and that this represents the dwelling place of God, the presence of God, okay? So it it, it becomes holy. It becomes a holy item, not to be worshipped, the item itself, but it represents the actual presence of God. God amongst his people, all right? So it's a very, very important thing. So we see the walls of Jericho fall. And then we get into the book of Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites go, the ark has magic powers, right? We marched it around Jericho, the walls fell. We're losing this battle with the Philistines. Now, mind you, God didn't tell them to bring it this time. They said, go get the ark, bring it out to the battle because we're not doing real well. So they went and got the ark, looking for its magical powers to beat the Philistines. The Philistines saw the ark and they got weary. They're like, oh, the presence of God. It's like they recognized it. 
But for some reason, they were able to overpower them. They stole the Ark of the Covenant, and they took it back with them. And man, some of the coolest stories transpire there, okay? So they take it back, and they put it in their own temple, and they have these giant statues of a god named Dagon, or uh, Dagon, or however you pronounce his name, and they, and they leave the Ark of the Covenant in there, in their own temples, okay? And uh, as they go in the next morning, this giant statue is face down on the ground in front of the Ark. That's pretty cool, Right? It didn't work as a magic box for the Israelites to win the battle. But man, the presence of God is still there and powerful in it, okay? We don't ever want to use God as a magic box to win something. We got to be careful, okay? That's not what God is about, okay? He's not our our magic genie in a box to fix things. We got to be careful how we look at him. All right, And so so anyway, that, that story is incredible. And if you read through that in... In the book of First Samuel, uh, really great story there. And, and so ultimately what happens is uh, these Philistines get really tired of it. They try to move it a couple of times. It doesn't work out for them. They just ultimately put it on a cart, and they say, we'll see. If it leaves, great. And these cows, just, they just carry it. They just go, right? And they take it away, all right? So, so this is the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so it makes it way it's, it's way back, and it ultimately ends up in the city of Shiloh. Now, many of you guys know that I was just recently in Israel, okay? I am, and I tell my kids this all the time, right? And Pastor Daniel said this last week too, I am the richest poor man you've ever met. I am. My bank account doesn't have a lot of money in it, but man, the thing God's, God has allowed me to do and allowed me to see is incredible, right? So, I've been to Shiloh. I just recently was in Shiloh, okay? Now, the crazy thing about Shiloh is Shiloh is a city, okay? And it was David's first capital. He established it as his first capital, according to Scripture, okay? Now, Shiloh is a city that archaeologists said the Bible is wrong. The Bible is wrong. There was no such place as Shiloh. There was no such place as Shiloh, right? And then they found it. They found Shiloh. And they found inscriptions of King David in Shiloh. And when I was in Shiloh, I have these two broken pieces of pottery. I met the archaeologist that discovered Shiloh. I met him. And it was incredible. He just happened to be there on the site digging. And he pulled us all aside and he gave us a talk. And he said, hey, you guys want some broken pottery? We have so much of it that that you're allowed to take it home. He said, here's a piece from 750 BC when David would have been here. And here's a piece from the first century, okay, when Jesus would have walked in this area. So I have these two pieces of pottery from Shiloh. It's pretty incredible, okay? Now, the tabernacle existed in Shiloh. It stayed there for a while. This was David's first capital. Okay? So when we read these stories about Samuel and his sons and the tabernacle and all this type of stuff, guys, you have to realize that that tabernacle is this tent that we're talking about. It wasn't the temple at that point. It wasn't a permanent building. Okay? So when we see a lot of this stuff through the book of First and Second Samuel, because David wasn't allowed to build this, it would be his son that would build the temple. So this temporary dwelling place that they're building right now, that they're getting instructions to, would be the home of worship for a long time, hundreds of years. 
before they would actually have a solid brick and mortar building. Okay? So all of this stuff becomes vitally important. Back to the Ark of the Covenant. Right? So it's in, and then eventually David moves the Ark to Jerusalem, which he establishes as his city. At that time, when David established Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a little bit of nothing. People are like, why are you establishing that city? The only good thing is, is it was on top of a hill, all right, which made it a, a somewhat of a fortitude, and David was able to build it up. Okay? So it made its way to Jerusalem, and then, here's the crazy thing. The Ark of the Covenant, the last time we hear it in Scripture mentioned, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. And then it's not mentioned again at all. Kind of. Sort of. Right? In 586 B.C., when the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem and took down the temple for the first time, nobody knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. You can read, and I read lots and lots and lots of stuff about it, okay? Some people believe that Jeremiah actually took it. Extra historical writings say that Jeremiah took it, and he hid it in a thing. And when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they actually found these copper things, and they believe that might be a map because some of the, the, the scribes follow Jeremiah. Some of this stuff is it's, it's wild. But nobody knows where it's at. That's why they created a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark, Right? There are some that suspect it's in Egypt, right? Some that suspect it's actually buried beneath Mount Moriah, okay? And so nobody really knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. But interestingly enough, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, it's mentioned again. It's mentioned again. In verse 19, so uh, it makes another appearance, okay? And it says... Um, that the, in, in Revelation 19, as John is going through heaven, he says, and the Ark of the Covenant was over on the side, right? So the place of the Ark of the Covenant in God's temple, right? So, I mean, and uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 says, things in the temple are copies of heavenly things. Things in the temple are copies of heavenly things. Now, I know that was a big introduction, a big introduction, but I wanted to give you a little bit of history of the Ark of the Covenant so you understand the importance of this box. Just give you some perspective. You know those black boxes that we use with yellow lids? You know those that we use around here? It's like a, it's about 20, 27 inches wide, right? About 45 to 48 inches long, about two, two and a half feet tall, something like that on its side. That's roughly the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. The ones we use to pack up all of the supplies that we have here when we're breaking down, one of the smaller ones, not the big, long, giant ones, the smaller ones. That's roughly the size of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? It's not enormous. It's relatively small in comparison. Based on what I just told you, and it's important, you would think that it's incredibly large, wouldn't you? But it's not. It's about 27 inches high, 27 inches wide, and about 45 inches long. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's a little box. 
Let's look at Exodus chapter 25 and talk about this little box and why this little box is so, so important. All right? Uh, Verse 10. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. A cubit's about 18 inches, just to give you some perspective. That's where I came up with those numbers, 27 inches and 45 inches, okay? Uh, It's about 18 inches. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I, shall gi- that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece of the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let's get some context for a minute. One thing that I want you to remember. Moses went up the mountain, right? You guys remember that? Remember we got the Ten Commandments way back there in chapter 20, like seven months ago? Right? Right? No, I'm kidding. It hasn't been that long. It's only been five chapters ago, guys. We got the Ten Commandments, okay? We got the Ten Commandments while Moses was up there on the mountain, right? And the cloud covered the mountain, and the people couldn't come on lest they die because the presence of God had filled the mountain. Guess where Moses is? He's still on the mountain, guys. He's getting instructions from God on the mountain in God's presence. God's speaking directly to him. We're in the same place. I know we've been here for for a month or more, but Moses has only been there for a short time. Receiving these instructions, receiving these things. So, So here Moses is on the mountain in the presence of God. And as we go on and continue, and Moses gets all the instructions for building the tabernacle, what we're going to find is the people of Israel will get tired of waiting for Moses to come down out of the mountain, and they will start doing things their own way. We all know that story, don't we? The golden calf. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, when we get tired of waiting on God and we try to do it our own way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant. I love this passage of Scripture, okay? So, God is giving instructions for building the tabernacle. The details are going to be very, very precise. He tells them what materials exactly and how to construct each element. This shows us that each element is of great importance. So, as we look at the Ark of the Covenant, it's important for us to remember this is a piece of furniture, 
but it becomes the dwelling place of God. Okay? It becomes the dwelling place of God here on earth. Okay? Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a foreshadowing of Christ. It is a foreshadowing of Christ. Right? We know that the entirety of the tabernacle is a foreshadowing of Christ. Last week, I shared with you in uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, okay, that the word that's used there, it says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling is the same word tabernacle. So you could literally translate that to say, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Okay, so God basically put on a temporary dwelling place, a tabernacle, that he could exist in the tabernacle and walk around and be with us, right? And so there's a lot of illustration, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So the ark, a picture of Christ. Let's talk about this because I think there's a lot of beautiful illustration here. The box portion first, right? Uh, so the details were very specific. It had to be made of wood and then covered in gold, okay? It had to be made of wood first. Now, people have tried and they've sorted through trying to find some spiritual significance to the acacia wood. It just happens to be the hardest wood of that area, it is in abundance in that area. It, bugs don't eat it. It doesn't rot. It grows in abundance in the middle of the desert like that. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, it grows in low humidity. Uh, so it's an incredibly, incredibly hard wood. And it's incredibly beautiful. But the beauty of it wouldn't be as important because you're covering it in gold, right? So, uh, so you have this incredibly, incredibly hard wood. Now, the wood, all wood at some level, is perishable, okay? All wood at some level is perishable. It can be burned, it can be consumed at some level. Some much harder than others, like acacia wood, okay? But gold, now we're going we're gonna to we're gonna cover it completely in gold. When you put intense heat to gold, what happens to it? It purifies it, Right? It doesn't consume it. It consumes the bad stuff out of it, brings it to the top. They call it dross, and then you scrape it off, and then you have more pure gold left than you did when you started, okay? So gold is one of those elements that is in its purity, okay? It is soft, but it's actually a, a pretty incredible uh, element uh, that's difficult to completely destroy, okay? Uh, so here we have a representation of the incarnation, of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, right? We have the wood, and it's very specific that in the scripture he says, build it first out of wood. Why not just make it completely out of gold, right? They had the technology to build things out of gold because soon they'll build the mercy seat completely out of gold, okay? Now, it's not that they, well, if we build it out of gold, it'll be too soft and the box will fall apart. No, it's for a specific reason. They could build it out of gold. The cherubim are built out of completely out of gold. The, the, the seat covering of this box is built completely out of gold. So why not the whole box? Well, because it has great meaning. And Scripture's full of symbolism like this. This wood represents the humanity of Christ, something perishable, something that could be consumed. But it's covered in gold, which represents the deity of Christ, something that when put under fire only becomes better, 
right? And so we see that as we look at this box. So uh, in a little bit, we're going to go inside and we're going to see what's inside of the Ark of the Covenant, which I think is just incredible. Uh, so that's the box portion. This box represents the incarnation of Christ. Now let's talk about the lid for a few minutes, okay? The lid is referred to as the mercy seat. It's referred to uh, multiple times in Scripture. Uh, it's referred to as the propitiation or the payment seat. It's also referred to as the atonement seat, okay? Uh, the lid was to be made of pure gold, no wood involved, and so this represents the deity in the fullness of his glorified form. In the fullness of his glorified form. If you guys remember when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he showed the three disciples his glorified form, Peter fell on his face. That Three of them fell on their face and did not know what to do because they were in the presence of the holy God in his purified form. Okay? And he was glowing. He was, I mean, it was, it was crazy. If you go back and read Matthew chapter 17, right? And so every year, once a year, Okay, the priest would go in to the Holy of Holies. Now remember, this box, this Ark of the Covenant, once the tabernacle was established, okay, would go into this room and it would not move. Okay, while the tabernacle was mobile, right, every time the cloud moved, the box moved. The whole tabernacle had to be torn down and they would follow along with the cloud and the fire. Okay, but once the tabernacle was established, once it was in its place, okay, that box would go inside of the Holy of Holies. Now, we'll start to break down, and if you have one of these, you can see, and I'll hold it up for you, but you can see there's an illustration of what that tent looks like inside of here. And right here at this very back edge of this tent, you'll see the Holy of Holies. And there's only a couple of things inside of the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant is the most important thing in there. Okay? Now, every year, the priest... Now, we've talked about this a couple of times. When we talk about Passover, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of families would come into Jerusalem every year with a lamb and sacrifice it for Passover. One lamb per family. Okay? That's a big deal, right? That's a lot of blood. Right? And so the high priest, after all those sacrifices would be made, would take a lamb without spot or blemish, would sacrifice it, would take the blood of that lamb, okay, into the Holy of Holies, and would drip the blood on the mercy seat. Okay? Now, this mercy seat represents the throne of God. It represents the throne of God in the fullness of, of purity and deity, in the fullness of his holiness, okay? So here the priest is, the high priest, the only person that can enter into there. And he's doing it for the missed sins, the unconfessed ones, the ones that people didn't bring before, uh, even the unknown sins, and for his own sins. But here's the thing. If he hasn't already confessed his sins, guess what happens to him when he walks into that room? It got so bad at one point in history when the priests were going in that they had to tie bells to the bottom of their robes and a rope to their ankle. 
And if they stopped hearing the bells for an extended period of time, that meant that the priest had gone in unholy and had died in the Holy of Holies and need to be dragged out. And that's why they tied the rope, because no one could go inside of that place. Okay, uh, Because the Ark of the Covenant was in there, and that Ark of the Covenant represented the dwelling place of God. Okay, Now, God is holy. Okay, We say all the time, God can't be in the presence of sin, but let me correct you. Sin can't be in the presence of God. Sin can't be in the presence of God. It's not God that's the one that's going to get hurt if he's in the presence of sin, because he does it. When Jesus, God in flesh, takes on the sins of the world, God is in the presence of sin because he chooses to be. It's the sin that can't handle it. So when the sin is in the presence of a holy God, it is consumed immediately. And so if you and I go in the presence of a holy God as sinners, we would be consumed. But Jesus, right? But Jesus. And you guys know, when Jesus hung on that cross, and when he died, that veil was torn. That veil was torn. So we could be in the presence of the holy God, okay? Romans chapter 3, 23. You guys all know this verse, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the gospel. We're sinners, and we've fallen short of the glory of God. If you've never learned the Romans road, okay, it's a great evangelistic tool. I encourage you to do it, and Romans 3.23 is part of, the part of the Romans road to salvation. It's a way to share with people through the book of Romans, okay, step by step, the gospel. And this one reminds us that we're sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And then it goes on to say, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Big word, right? Propitiation. As an atonement, as a payment, as blood upon the mercy seat. When Paul's writing to the Romans, he knows exactly what he's talking about. When he says propitiation, he's referring to the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that he put forth as a blood payment upon the mercy seat. Upon the mercy seat, okay? Now, uh, <clears throat> it said to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, right? So now, the mercy seat, we've talked about it. It's made of pure gold, right? And it has these two lovely angels, that's because God likes things all decorated up. Well, if you go to churches and all throughout, I mean, I'm sure if, if Esteban took you on a tour through Spain, he could show you some of the most beautiful cathedrals ever built, right? Incredible cathedrals with gold everywhere and, and all of these stained glass. And they're beautiful. They're incredible. But that's not why God put these angels on top of this thing, right? Surely there's some other reason. And I love this. Uh, Warren Wiersbe is probably one of my very favorite commentators, okay? Uh, so Warren Wiersbe, the reason that I love him is because he is so simply profound. 
And if you've ever read him, you understand that, okay? He is so simply profound. You can read him. I think he probably writes at about an eighth grade level, and that really hits it right there for me, right? Eighth grade level. My, I, if I'm going to read a book, right, eighth grade level is a good one, okay? So, but, and, and actually they say the average American newspapers are written at eighth grade levels, all these types of things. Some commentators write at like... Uh, college senior or doctorate level and you're reading their book, if you've ever read anything by Lee Strobel, okay, that guy's brilliant, but you got to be brilliant to understand his book, all right? He's got some simpler ones, but some of his books are pretty complicated, okay? He uses high language and a lot of things, okay? But Warren Wearsby has this great way of simply putting things in a way, and, and he says this, he says, frequently in Scripture you find the image of finding safety under his wings. Sometimes this refers to a mother bird protecting her young, but it can also refer to being under the wings of the cherubim in the holy of holies. Safety under his wings. We find safety in the mercy of God because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Wow. I love that. I think, it's, I think it's so beautiful. And if you read in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, I love this passage of Scripture, because it says, and we have a great high priest who's been tempted in every way as you and I, but did not sin. And then it goes on to say that because Christ is our high priest, we can approach the throne of God with confidence that we might find mercy and grace in our time of need. The seat represents mercy in the holiness and the purity of God because of the atonement and those wings, those angels represent that grace, that covering, that, that special pulling in and protection and safety that he gives us. This represents the throne of God here on earth. That's what this Ark of Covenant was all about. It was representing the throne of God here on earth. So for it to represent mercy and safety and grace is so important because God has not changed people. People say all the time that the God of the Old Testament, he, oh, he's the angry God. You get to the God of the New Testament and he's got mercy and grace. No. Right here from the beginning, you see the mercy and grace of God all over the place. You see it all through the Old Testament. You see it everywhere we go throughout Scripture. And so God has given us, because of Jesus Christ, the high priest that can enter into the throne room of God because he has already paid the lamb sacrifice with the blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat. We have the privilege to enter in. We have the privilege to enter in this box. It represents so much. In Hebrews chapter 9, I don't have time to read the whole passage of Scripture to you, okay? But Hebrews chapter 9 really begins to break down, and in verse 2 it says the tent was prepared. It talks about the first section with the lampstand, the table of bread. We'll talk about that next week, the bread of the presence. Uh, and it's called the holy place. And then behind the second curtain, it says, was the second section called the most holy place. It had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. A golden urn holding manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory, 
overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak of in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly uh, performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest can go, and but once a year, not without taking the blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. I love that because Scripture indicates that all of this is symbolic for the present age. It's all pointing us to Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he said, the, the law of Moses and the prophets, it's all referring to me. It's all referring to me. All of that stuff. A lot of times we look at the Old Testament as a book of laws and a book of this, but the Old Testament is, is pointing us to Jesus. He's in, integrated all through the words of Scripture here. We see an illustration of Jesus in the simple description of a box. The dwelling place of God. He tabernacles among us. Let's talk about these three things real quick and then I'll wrap it up. In Exodus chapter 25, it says that the testimony, the Ten Commandments would be put inside of this box, right? There's two other things that Hebrews mentioned. A golden jar of manna, okay, Jesus would refer to manna often, the bread from heaven. And he said, I'm the real bread from heaven. I'm the real bread from heaven. God gave a temporary bread from heaven, but I'm the real bread from heaven, okay? And Aaron's budding staff. That's an odd one, right? Aaron's budding staff, okay? The Ten Commandments, I, I, I was reading a, a thing by John Mark Comer, and I don't know if you like him or not, but he's very passionate, and that's one of the things I like about him. Um, he's very passionate, and he talks about the Ten Commandments being God's kind of love contract with us. God didn't give them to you because he wants to punish you, but because he wants to show you how to love him. Here's, here's these things that are going to help you love me better. They're going to help you love other people better, which is part of loving me. So here's these 10 rules that's just going to help you, help you love me better, right? Those of you guys that are married, you know. In marriage, you say, hey, honey, this works for me. This doesn't. This, this particular thing, I feel loved when you do this. And that's what God is telling us here in the Ten Commandments, Right? And the manna, representation of Jesus, but Aaron's budding staff? Let's talk about these three things real quick. These three things were inside of the thing, okay? Jar of manna, God's provision from heaven, okay? God's provision for, from heaven. Each of these things were given to the children of Israel as a representation of God's provision for the children of Israel after they had done something wrong. Think about these things, right? They wandered around. They wandered around in the desert. And they said, we're so hungry, God. You should have left us in Egypt to die. You should have just left us in Egypt to die. And he gave them manna from heaven. And guess what? That provision of God, oh, it was glorious for a little bit. 
Come on, the same thing every day, God? What about meat? Don't you remember the, the boiling pots of meat from Egypt? When I think about meat, I think about it that way too. I'm sorry if you're a vegetarian. Um, right? So the manna. In some way, they rebelled against God and God provided for them. The Ten Commandments. In many ways, they rebelled against God and God provided for them. They were a disaster. They didn't know how to love God. They'd been in Egypt under Egyptian rule for hundreds of years and they walk out into the middle of the desert and God says, hey, rebellious people, I need to teach you how to love me. Here's how you love me. Hey, rebellious people, I need to give you provision from heaven so that you can eat and satisfy yourselves. And then Moses said, hey, God told me that my brother Aaron will be the high priest and he'll be the priest and everyone coming out of him will be under him as priest. Okay, the lineage of the Levites. And you know what the children of Israel cried? Nepotism! Which means, why'd you choose your brother? Because he's your brother, right? That's what they cried. And God said, Moses, tell Aaron a person from every tribe, their chosen leader, who would like to be the priestly line, okay? Tell them to bring a staff. And they're all going to lay it outside of the tent. And they're going to lay it in a circle. Every staff labeled. And then when we wake up in the morning, the one dead piece of wood that starts blooming, that's my chosen lineage to be the priest. And it was Aaron's. And they said, now the people can't complain. Nepotism. They can't say it was just because of Moses. They know that it was hand-selected by me, God personally, because dead wood doesn't bloom. Rebellion. All three of these things at some level represent rebellion. The Ten Commandments. Guys, when we, when we lead people to the Lord, a lot of times we use the Ten Commandments to show them their rebellion. So the law, of course, represents rebellion. Sin, rebellion, put inside of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin. He didn't carry it in a black trash bag in no kind of sack to the cross, guys. He became sin that you and I might receive the righteousness of God. That you and I might receive the righteousness of God. So this box with these things inside of it is the gospel. Right here in Exodus 25. God didn't think of the gospel later, guys. He had it mapped out before the foundation of the world. And he has woven it into every story that you find in this Bible. And it's beautiful. Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. So as we prepare our hearts for communion... Let's remember that. Jesus went to the cross to pay that atonement sacrifice upon the mercy seat of God. And because of that, we get to boldly approach the throne of God. So as Nico comes and begins to play, we're going to spend a song and we're going to prepare our hearts before the Lord. He took our sins, He put them in Himself covered him with his deity. 
that we may be able to go directly to him. There is so much symbolism in this tabernacle. It is incredibly, incredibly beautiful. It's such a rich text. I'm so excited for you to see it all. Let's spend a few minutes before the Lord thanking him, thanking him that he loved you from the foundation of the world. And here we sit thousands of years later enjoying the presence, the dwelling place of God because of what he had prepared. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delray Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter where you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you. And thank you so much for listening.